Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Kristen here again, just adding a little intro at the start of this episode. And mainly that's because this episode is on anxiety. And I've had anxiety. Many people I know have had anxiety, including a lot of family members and friends. And I just wanted to say, when I first heard this, I got so stoked. I was messaging Dan. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to share this with like my family members and they're going to love it. And it's just such a refreshing perspective that Curtis provides about how anxiety is normal. And it's not this thing that we just have to push it down or feel like we need to overcome it. And that was just really encouraging to me. So I guess what I wanted to say is if you have someone you're thinking of and you want to share this with them, I would just go and do it. It's a great opportunity to encourage someone, give them new resources, and maybe connect on something that you otherwise wouldn't have. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And here it is. Curtis Chang, you are a theologian, consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School, a senior fellow at Fuller Seminary, and co-host of the Good Faith Podcast through your own organization, Redeeming Babel. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. 
That's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, each of those institutions are, I think, essentially, broadly speaking, to my right and the to the right, quote unquote, of, you know, the average listener of this show. But that makes me excited because I would also describe each of those organizations as, broadly speaking, operating in good faith, which is not a, I didn't intend that pun, <laughs> but I'm sure it has to do with your choice of that title for the podcast, like yeah. genuinely attempting constructive work. You know, these days on the right, and I'm sure on the left as well, although I don't, I try not to consume that content either. A lot of bad faith actors, especially in public speaking, podcasting, writing, news punditry, so much bad faith stuff going on, especially around sociopolitics. And so anytime I find people doing honest work, depending on how much I agree with them, kind of doesn't really matter. If we're working in good faith, then we can find uh, commonalities, we can clarify difference, we can iron sharpen iron, essentially. And so I was excited to have you for that reason, among others. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about your work. And yes, you're exactly right. That is why we named our podcast Good Faith, because we did envision a range of topics and conversations that we could explore precisely in that spirit where we could accept one another without having to agree with one another. And the conflation of those two things is so much what I think is causing some toxicity in our public discourse. So we're hoping to model a different way. That's awesome. And I actually think that our two podcasts are two of the only shows that I know of in the, broadly speaking, the the faith world. I think you get it more in politics because it's more normal to have like policy discussions and and whatever. But in terms of sort of faith podcasts, I think we are two of the only shows that ever have anybody on with whom we substantively disagree oh, on, well, on an issue. That's 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 too bad because we should have more of that. Yes. Yeah, it really is. I, I'm not aware of many more conservative ones that do it. Certainly, I, I'm pretty familiar with the progressive Christian podcast. None of them do it. And it's like, wow, given that that's something that's really missing. So that's it's a big value of mine. And I'm glad that you guys instantiate that as well. Uh, But that's not mostly what we're talking about today. We're talking about anxiety and worry. But let's start with the basic human life, which is the focus of your book. It's called The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Let's start with some definitions. What do you mean when you talk about anxiety? And is that word interchangeable with the word worry or, you know, where are you coming from? Yeah, I would define anxiety as a natural human reaction we have to the potential loss that may occur in the future. So it is really the fear of future loss. It's to be distinguished from fear, which is reacting to something immediately present, right? So somebody is putting a gun to my head. I am going to be afraid. If I am worried in the future that somebody, some imaginary person may put a gun to my head, that's anxiety. And so that's one way to think about anxiety is the range of human reactions, both mentally, physiologically, emotionally, that we go through when we are in fear of a future loss. I would add a further definition here that I would distinguish anxiety from anxiety disorder. So anxiety is the human natural reaction, which I will argue is is universal, is in fact uh, found in Jesus himself. Um, And we can talk about that. But uh, so that's anxiety. Anxiety disorder is when we cannot actually, when we respond unhealthily to anxiety, when we can't actually hold 
the experience of anxiety in the ways that I think we're meant to hold it. I think it's important to distinguish those two. And part of the problem is that in both Christian faith circles and in secular mental health, we have increasingly conflated those two, such that any anxiety is treated as a problem, as something that's a pathology, either a spiritual pathology or a me medical pathology that we are supposed to treat and make go away, either through spiritual means or through secular mental health means. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I, I have clients, you know, I, I see 13 clients right now and will be doing that for, for many years to come. And I'm aware of that critique of of sort of secular therapy, which I am a Christian, but I, I don't practice, you know, biblical counseling or Christian psychotherapy or anything. I, I practice regular psychotherapy and I'm kind of cognitively oriented, which I know that you have some experience with um, mm -hmm. cognitive therapy. But I also include spirituality and people's faith in that because I think that a good therapy does include that. And I also try not to pathologize lower levels of anxiety or depression. So for instance, if I have a brand new client and I we give a kind of a standard anxiety and depression inventory based on what they said they wanted to come in for, if those numbers aren't that high, then I say, well, it looks like you got a little kind of mild anxiety and and I don't sort of then laser focus on that. There's usually something else that that we are needing to deal with. I wonder how much of that over pathologizing might come more from like primary care providers who are, you know, doling out meds. I think that a well-trained therapist will know when to spot like pretty mild anxiety or depression and, and not sort of laser focus on that as if they have a hammer. And so everything is a nail, but I guess yeah. I don't, I don't know uh, what goes on out in the wider world. Yeah, I don't either, but I do think the key that distinction I want to make is the difference between anxiety, whatever level you're feeling anxiety, even if it's a high level of anxiety yeah. versus anxiety disorder, which is, again, our inability to actually hold yeah. anxiety. I mean, it's it's actually when we treat anxiety as a problem that we have to make go away, either again, either through the standard spiritual, maybe yeah. maybe more found in the conservative Christian world yeah. of pray anxiety away. Yeah, pray it away. Or... Or we outsource it, maybe this may be to stereotype, maybe found more in like mainline or progressive Christian circles, which, you know, take pains not to stigmatize spiritually. Sure. Anxiety. <laughs> yeah. We then still will we'll outsource it to yeah. secular mental health, which is then rather than pray anxiety away, we prescribe anxiety away. Mm. And I am, a, and to be very clear, I'm a big believer in prescriptions. Yeah. I have been prescribed therapy. I've been prescribed anti-anxiety medication. Those are very helpful to bring like levels of anxiety down to manageable, um, you know, sort of levels. Yeah. But even those approaches, having gone through many, many years of those approaches, they do not make anxiety go away. You cannot prescribe anxiety away. Yeah. The flaw is, is when we construct anxiety as a problem that we have to make go away versus what I'm arguing for is that anxiety is actually an opportunity, one of the most powerful opportunities we have for growth, especially spiritual growth. And I'm speaking as somebody who has experienced firsthand the very painful dimensions of anxiety. I'm not coming at this from the outside yeah. as somebody who's just wagging a finger and saying, you ought to think about it this way. I've experienced this deeply myself. I mean, this is, I, I write the book out of some uh, some very painful experiences of anxiety and still experience it. 
Yeah. And I, I want to have you talk about that because some of those anecdotes, especially from your childhood, are are pretty heartrending. I like your distinction between anxiety and an anxiety disorder. Obviously, if you have an anxiety disorder, I would recommend that you see a, a therapist or a mental health uh, professional. That is what we are trained to help you deal with. But actually, you're you're getting at something that doesn't get talked a lot about. But mental health practitioners, we know it. We know it firsthand, which is, look, someone comes into our office. We see them for one hour a week. They have the rest of this time. And then eventually we stop seeing them. And then they have many, many years of their life after we see them. Really, what can we do? And a lot of what we are doing is managing sort of extremes. We are helping them during a season of their life where the the natural anxiety has become an anxiety disorder. Let's help them get that back down to just normal human levels of anxiety. And frankly, that's great. If that's all the work we do, fantastic. We did our job. It's sort of like a, a back surgeon sees you when you need back surgery and then you go on your merry way. And like that's and you're very grateful, assuming that the back surgery was successful. You know, like that. That's fine. The this, The sort of like just anxiety as a human condition. I mean, you're in line with really kind of classic, both existential philosophers and classic psychotherapists that the cognitive capacity that human beings developed, we can project into the future. As far as we know, most other animals cannot do that. And therefore they don't experience anxiety because they don't, they experience fear. Like you said, Oh, there's a gun to my head right now. There is a bear chasing me right now. I'm afraid I will react but they don't imagine a bear chasing them as far as we know. Uh, Maybe chimps and other primates can do a little bit of this, but obviously as humans, we can project infinitely into the future. Essentially we can, we can conceive of the future life of the universe 10 to the, you know, whatever 500th power or something like that. We can really go all the way. And that naturally brings in the possibility of anxiety because something bad might occur I like how you're describing it as loss. You could even just say a bad thing that might happen in the future that I can anticipate happening. And yeah, so I, I, I love that distinction. I think it's important. So we're not really today talking about anxiety disorders and the treatment of those in therapy. Uh, I talk about that stuff kind of plenty. So we're talking about just this more natural human experience of, hey, something could go bad. I could lose something and I'm aware of it because I have the capacity to be aware of it. Yeah. And when we think of that equation, anxiety equals loss or loss in the future, if you just ponder that for a moment, you start recognizing why it's so important not to categorize anxiety as a problem. Yeah. Because once we categorize mentally something as a problem, then what's the natural human reaction of what we're looking for when we have a problem? We're looking for a solution. And in our modern Western technocratic culture, what is a solution to a problem that is deemed as an effective, satisfying solution? Well, it's a solution that does something to the problem. Namely, it makes it go away. Right. right? And so once we then have established in our minds, our hearts, our emotions, a relationship with anxiety, which is it is a problem that we must make go away. When we go back to that equation, anxiety equals loss then really what we're saying is we have to make loss go away. We have to make the possibility of loss go away. Hmm. And that's when anxiety really becomes problematic and paradox and paradoxically actually is most more likely to become an anxiety disorder right. is when we start engaging in practice and habits, mental, physical, emotional, relational habits 
which we are trying to make loss and therefore anxiety go away. I use this formula in my book it's that anxiety equals loss times avoidance. That avoidance yeah. is the multiplier effect. And then studies have shown that what you know the pervasive consistent thread through anxiety variety of anxiety disorders are various practices of avoidance. Avoidance is also a major problem with both grief. You know, if mm. you when you have an actual loss in the past, yeah, not the future, right. and you avoid grief, and when you have a traumatic experience and you avoid processing through and feeling yeah. all of the losses That's right. of that trauma, not only is avoidance a symptom of PTSD, for instance, but most trauma theorists believe that it, it actually is a main factor in the maintenance and the continuation of those symptoms. So it's it's really nefarious. And I'm, I'm always talking with my trauma clients about avoidance and, and grief. Well, absolutely. And again, we see this in Jesus. And this is, again, as a public theologian, I'm trying to, especially in my book, help people of faith, people who have followed Jesus, have some appreciation of Jesus to see in him a model of human experience going mm. through anxiety. And in the Gethsemane passage, th that passage where Jesus is about to face his loss, his loss of all losses, his own death, his own yeah. death on, a, on the crucifixion, he, we see him grieving. He is deeply grieved, uh, the text says. And that is really, I think, very congruent with what you're saying, is that rather than, and he's tempted, by the way, he is tempted to avoid loss. He prays to his Father God, look, if it's possible, yeah, if it's yeah, possible, yeah. I'd like to avoid this. <laughs> I'd like to avoid drinking. It's kind of like Jesus's most cake and eat it to moment in the Gospels. Where yeah, he's yeah. It's like, like, hey, if I could avoid this, <laughs> that I would, that would be yeah. awesome. If I, He's human. Yeah. I mean, that, which yeah, is human. so much, again, yeah. this is a deeply human experience, right? Yeah. But he ultimately goes through the path, and part of that path is I am. He says, "Remain here to his disciples. Remain here with me," which is such a lovely phrase. Remain here. Don't avoid this place. Re mm. Stay here with me. Stay awake. Don't try to numb or narcotize yourself to this. Remain mm. awake to this experience and grieve with me. Like it's an invitation mm. to 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 grief, and and that's exactly right in terms of. What grief is, is suffering loss in the present. It's actually the loss that we're experiencing. We are endure, we are holding it. We're, we're not pushing it away. We're not trying to come up with some way to get around it. We're holding it present. And that's exactly what Jesus does in Gethsemane. And it's the exact opposite of avoidance. It's, it's holding it in the present rather than trying to avoid it in the future. I love that reading of that passage. I also, I do love that story, you know, from a, even just from a purely psychological level, that that scene in the passion narrative of of Jesus, you know, sweating blood, uh, asking but sort of not asking, you know, it's yeah. it is kind of the ultimate. Like I think so many youth group boys and girls learned from that prayer, like how to ask <laughs> God for something that you really want but that you might not think God wants from you. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, right. Really, could Jenny please like me back if it be your will, God? Um, you know, so nice little template there for how to ask without asking. But truly, I mean, I, that's funny. But like the sitting in that tension of that just deep, deep angst, Jesus surely knowing what's coming down the pipe there. And, and that's true no matter sort of what kind of supernatural knowledge or not you ascribe to him. He's an astute enough guy at that yeah. moment to know what's coming. 
And, uh, you know, of course he knows that he's been betrayed and, and all of that. And, and it's just, I mean, I love the darkness of that because it gets at something very true in the human experience. Hopefully we don't have all that many Gethsemane nights in our, in our three score and 10, but we have some. I think we're all going to, I mean, it is, I mean, this is the irony of anxiety. Anxiety tells us this is an experience in the face of the uncertain possibility of future loss. Mm -hmm. The irony, the great perverse irony of anxiety is in actuality, every anxiety we feel points to some inevitable loss. Yeah. Because the reality, we don't know when that loss is going to happen, but that loss will happen. Why do we know? Well, just think about any anxiety you're feeling. Anxiety about your where your retirement account is. Anxiety about your health, about your you know how my kids feel about me. Those are all losses: losses of finance, losses of productivity, loss of self-image, loss of some relationship. If any of your listeners right now can identify some current anxiety they're feeling, and I ask them, "What's the percentage likelihood that that loss will occur at some point in your life? That the essence of that loss will occur at some point in your life?" People will be like, oh, I don't know. I always get these answers like 10%, 15%, 30%. And they think I'm doing some cognitive behavioral. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm actually doing like, like existential therapy, really. I, I suppose you yeah. got to call it. Because really the correct answer to that question is 100%. Yeah. It's 100%. Because why? Because we're all mortal human beings. We're all going to die. And when we die, we lose everything. We lose all of our finances. You can't take it with you. We lose all of our loved ones. You cannot... Take your relationships with you through death. You know, uh, our self-image is, is, we lose our self-image. You yeah. know, we're not, we're, we're not productive. We're not, we're, we're helpless. And so the the irony is we're afraid of, of some loss and we want to avoid that loss, which is why we get into these avoidance moves. The truth of life is that all of the loss is inevitable for us. And so the answer cannot be ultimately avoid loss. That cannot be the answer to anxiety. It must be some pathway that takes us through loss. And this is why, you know, ultimately for me, the Christian narrative, the Christian hope around anxiety is so compelling for me because it offers a, a I think, psychologically true but ultimately, spiritually, I think, distinctive vision of what is the answer to loss. Um, and that really is actually the promise of restoration, the promise of resurrection. It's that we can go through loss, the loss of all losses, death itself, because we know we are held by God through that loss. And on the other side of that loss is restoration. But the critical thing, Dan, is, and this is where Christians uh, of my tribe can so often get get mistaken is resurrection is not avoidance. Resurrection is actually the exact opposite of avoidance. Resurrection yeah. comes by going through loss. That's that's what law resurrection is. It's it's you have to go through death, the loss of all losses. You have to walk through that doorway. It's not avoidance. And by the way, this is true across all Christian denominations. It's true across all uh, against many spiritual dimensions. Is we can sort of project onto God. That God is some cosmic loss avoidance scheme yeah. in our life, oh, yeah. right? That, like God exists so that we will be guaranteed against loss. And when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed. We lose faith. We say, God let us down. When God actually never promised that he exists to ensure that we never experience loss in our life. Quite the opposite. The very narrative Jesus says, no, the human experience is to go through loss. It's not the end of the story. 
but it is a key chapter of the story and it's an unavoidable chapter. Yeah, I think that I have been out of more conservative Christian circles now for so long that I kind of forget we might, I, don't, I hope this isn't prejudicial, but we might call it like the, the cross stitchification of joy, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the, yeah. the, the little verses here and there you address in the book, sort of the, the misuse of Paul and, you know, be anxious for nothing. One term that people use is spiritual bypassing, right? The idea that we, we basically use religious or spiritual language, generally an agreed upon phrase or verse from within our group that actually is just an avoidance technique. It it, it right. doesn't deal with the root cause of the pain. Yeah. And maybe you have examples of that from your circles or in your own life, people trying to do that to sort of calm your own pain or anxiety or whatever yeah. that you could share. Sure. Well, I write about this uh, in my book, but when I was a senior in college, my senior year, with one semester left to graduate, I came down with crippling back pain. Uh, I had scoliosis all my life, but it didn't cause me pain until my senior year. And I had to drop out of school with like one semester left to graduate with all sorts of uncertainty looming before me. Would I ever get back to school? Yeah. Would I ever finish? Would I ever get a degree? Would I have to leave all my friends behind? Would anybody ever find me attractive? An incredible amount of anxiety. And then I was part of a Christian fellowship student fellowship group on campus. And they all gathered around to pray for me. And uh, there was a number of charismatics in the group that got really very motivated. And and all of it was good. They were trying to care for me. They loved me. And I think they were anxious. Yeah. They were anxious of me losing me because I was, a, you know, all, I was their friend. And yes. boy, if Curtis has to leave, will he ever return? And so there started to generate this expectation that that in this intense moment of prayer that we were well, we were also going to invite this this you know pastor who supposedly had the gift of healing to come and pray and do this laying on of hands and praying for me, and eventually you know I had I had friends tell me like oh yeah I, I really believe God is going to heal you like I really believe that I really believe I've heard it, and so there was this incredible and people were fasting and praying and then wow. that night came the pastor. Uh, from out of town came. We had this very intense prayer time for me. People claimed, you know, named and claimed healing, some of them, or they just prayed very firmly. There yeah. were other people, like I said, praying off campus and in fasting. And Dan, nothing happened. Right. Well, I, I could have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get healed. Yeah. I still have this. I still have back pain, you know, with me to this day. Yeah. And so I have, I've experienced what it's like to come to God with the expectation, oh, of course. God is going to enable me to avoid this loss. That's what God does, isn't it? Uh, again, consciously or subconsciously, we carry that. And then when that doesn't happen, it's it can be a crushing experience, especially if we really, really believe God was supposed to have done that. Then it's like, well, God let me down. Um, or or perhaps even worse, did I do something wrong? Exactly. Did I, did I lack enough faith? Do I have some hidden sin? secreted away somewhere in me. That was the the blockage to God's work, right? So, you know, you add then loss, anxiety, and then shame on top of all of that. That's yeah. a pretty toxic brew. So yeah, I've, I've experienced that. And that, that was, you know, a key moment of spiritual growth for me. And this is, again, the key, the message of the book is that actually anxiety is an opportunity for spiritual growth because it, it, I remember very clearly, I was like, wait a minute, who is God? Am I, am I relating to God like some cosmic 
you know, vending machine in the sky, that if Mm -hmm. I just press the right buttons of faith, of prayer, of this spiritual move, then God will like automatically dispense to me loss avoidance, you know, Uh, we'll just pop down out of that machine. And I realized, no, actually, like, it's a very different thing to relate to God as a dispenser of scenarios, as a dispenser of, of some outcome, especially outcome of loss avoidance. It's a very different thing to dispense, to relate to God as a dispenser of scenarios and relate to God as God, as right. a person, um, as right. an actual person with autonomy, their own ideas, their own, you know, and so this is one opportunity for spiritual growth when we are experiencing anxiety. It's an opportunity for us to ask, what am I relating to God? Am I just, do I just want scenarios from God or do I want God? Do I want to relate to the Father God in the present moment, not in the, not in the future as, a, as an insurance scheme against loss, but actually in the very present? have got some seriously cool stuff coming up for patrons of this show. You can become a patron for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is in the show notes. But what do you get? Well, you get exclusive access to the Facebook group, only paying members. And let me tell you, that makes for a better group. But the stuff I am interested in telling you about today is some of these upcoming episodes. We've got some really good stuff. Of course, we've got the fourth and final shiny happy people full episode with mark scandrett that's coming out soon and then we've got um, a full-length conversation with samantha perez she is a longtime and super involved member of this community especially those in the facebook group will will recognize her name we have a full-length conversation around what's changed in her life over these past four or five years including um, transitioning We've also got a brand new Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony coming up soon. What else? There is a conversation about the psychology of Christian nationalism on the horizon. Another one, uh, some interesting original research by Brandon Flannery on why people are leaving Christianity uh, based on his research. Just a bunch of cool stuff coming. It's a great time to join the Patreon. So if you're interested in that, or if you just want to support this work financially, and you don't care about any of those extra episodes, that's fine. I would care about them, but I'm not going to judge you, and I will still accept your <laughs> your grateful support. Uh, Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Five bucks a month. That link is in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. One of the things that I do often with clients is we use the pain, the negative emotions, whatever they are. Sometimes we'll break out this thing called an emotion wheel, which gets Mm. you uh, into kind of more specific emotions than just anger, fear, sadness. And, And I tell them the reason that we do this is because these are clues, essentially. Okay. You're, you're overwhelmed by an emotion and you think it's sadness. It's, it's, it just feels vague. It's sadness. Well, let's look a little closer. Oh, oh, you know what it is actually? It's, you feel left out. Okay. Left out by who? Ah, left out by your parents. 
Okay. Right. Why? Right. And you follow, and then you basically follow that trail to get down to the nub of whatever it is that's going on. And if, if instead you numb yourself from the sadness, number one, you never realize that it's actually, you're feeling left out. You're feeling abandonment and that's more specific than sadness. And then you're not going to ask the following things. And then you're not going to be able to deal with whatever is causing those abandonment feelings. Or maybe the, the way that you're treating your partner as a result of the abandonment you're feeling from your parents. Right. So it sounds very similar to me, the way you're talking about looking deeper into our anxieties, you know, their content or whatever. I would say too, it's helpful to pay attention to when they pop up, not just the content of them, but around what do they tend to, to jump? I've had clients where figuring out that like after their lunch crash, you know, in the early afternoon, certain feelings would come and there is kind of a biological element to it, like a nutritional mm, element yeah. unrelated to the other thing going on. And that's good to know, too. Just like any data, any sort of clues around it can be really helpful. Is that I mean, am I kind of on the same path as, as what you're thinking? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I write about in the book that anxiety is a sign. It's a signpost, both to what's really happening to ourselves, what God is trying to do in our lives. And it takes some discernment. We have to actually pay mm -hmm. attention to it and listen to it, not try to make it go away, which is, again, why it, we cannot categorize it as a problem. And I think it's it's as its opportunity is where we want to go, is, is actually like, actually lean into it, look at it, pay attention to it. And I do think that's right. I, I've had numerous examples where what I thought was my anxiety was not actually the real root loss that I was, I was uh, really afraid of. I'll just yeah. give you an example of this. Um, when I turned 50, uh, I found myself very restless, kind of anxious, really, a very low level. Now, this is not a, not a very high level, but I was realizing, why am I so feeling anxious? And I realized, to your point about paying attention to time, that it happened in the evenings a lot. And, and I was coping with it by trying to research consumer purchases. Uh, so this was a classic <laughs> avoidance move, right? Like yeah, yeah. I, want to, I want to feel something else. Uh -huh. I don't like this feeling of, of anxiety that I yeah. want. So I was like, yeah, I think we need an air fryer, Jody. You know, I to my wife, yeah. you know, I think I, you know, no, you know, what about a pepper grinder? And I realized it wasn't, it was not consumerism in the thing that I was wanted yeah. these things. I wanted the sensation of research and then as I sort of like like dug further into that and tried to pay attention to that, I was like, oh, I think what I'm anxious about is the lack of productive activity. And I realized I put it together like, oh, and I just turned 50. And also, by the way, when I just turned 50, my kids also started are in high school. And so all of these things are coming together. I'm turning 50, right? The classic age when you start really paying attention to your own mortality. Shoot, I started 10 years early, Curtis, man. I'm Whoops. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> but, you know, my kids are also grown. They're they're getting into high school. They don't need me as much. The classic evening routine where you're helping your kids with homework and getting them ready for bed, that was define your productive self mm. in all throughout your 40s and yeah. 30s goes away, right? So I'm turning 50. I'm losing my sense of immortality. I'm losing my sense of productive activity uh, in terms of as a parent. And so I'm feeling anxious. And, and of course, I'm trying to cope with this by this faux 
activity of productivity, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to generate productive activity by just saying, well, let me research and discover things that will help me be more productive because that's what, you know, the, imagine the productivity gains you get from a powered pepper grinder. Um, and so, you know, that was a very helpful sign reading that I did that helped me realize, oh, really the, the loss that I'm afraid of right now is the loss of my productive self. And let me lean into that. Yeah. Let me look at that rather than trying to get a away from that through all these distractive emotional head fakes. Let me actually lean into that. And that is a profoundly was a profoundly growthful step for me spiritually. You're making me think about this thing that keeps coming up for me the more and more that I do therapy and connect it back to sort of my theological vision of the human life, which is that there's a supreme practicality around mindfulness by which in this case, I don't mean sort of mindful meditation practices, but more like awareness. So you, people talk about yeah. mindful eating. That's like where your, yeah. your diet quote unquote is just kind of paying attention to what you're eating and not eating sort of without, you know, right. just snack, throwing chips in your mouth without thinking about it. So becoming mindfully aware of ourselves what's going on in our bodies, you know, which includes our nervous system and our brain. And that really so much of what I think of as spiritual growth, frankly, becoming the person that, that God would like me to be, that God is luring me to become the sort of the highest version of myself to, you know, very similar to the language you're using in the title of the book in the subtitle. Like when we do work with clients around addiction or, or any other number of things, you know, we'll also do, often do this thing called a behavior chain analysis. So at the bottom mm -hmm. or actually kind of in the middle, you've got the behavior that you're trying to stop doing, you know, your, your addictive behavior or some other sort of self-destructive thing, or it could be anger, or it could be you know a big outburst, whatever it is. Right. And then what are all the links in the chain that happened before that? Yeah. And then what are the consequences afterward? And, and then those ones, inevitably link back around and it becomes cyclical and you're trying to like get in and break that chain, looking for places where you can sort of step in and provide something else. So, you know, and, and that's like so, so practical. It's so this worldly, if you want to call it that, but let's yeah. say yeah. your spiritual goal is a healthier marriage. Well, <laughs> that's how you can do it, man. You got to figure out what it is that happens to you before you scream at your wife. Right. And then you stop right, screaming right. at your wife and now you have a healthier marriage and there's more room for all the other kinds of flourishing, et cetera. And there's a good chance what's behind the chain of dynamics that lead you to shout at your wife or frankly, any other Anything addictive else, yeah. behavior is anxiety. I mean, there's a really good chance. I mean, you know, that is, as you well know, in, in the treatment of addiction, this is why treatment of anxiety is so often interwoven through the treatment of anxiety, because people are choosing addictive behaviors or substances to actually get around loss, to get avoid yeah. loss, to avoid the negative emotions mm -hmm. around loss. And so that's what leads them into the addiction. And so until they can actually experience loss and go through it rather than try to avoid it, they're going to be very vulnerable to addiction or anger or any, mm -hmm. anything else. The thing I want to point out, Dan, is the promise for, for Christians who are engaged in this personal relationship with God through the Spirit in Jesus is that that investigative process does not have to happen just by yourself, by the dint of your own mm. efforts and your own self-introspective. 
that the beauty of the Christian life for me is that it is not just about the self, that there is another, there's another in the story, another in the relationship, and that God is that other who is actually in an active way, if we're open to it, involved in this process of reading the signs of our anxiety. We are not alone in that. You know, so Psalm 139, uh, I write about this passage in the book. It's it's a beautiful s- story of the prayer of some of an anxious person, Psalm 139. And, you know, it, it ends with saying, search me, God, know my heart. And the heart for the for the Hebrews was the origin of their thoughts. They didn't have a conception of the brain. The, the heart was the origin right. that they thought thoughts, you know, took place in. Search me. And so know that the origin of my thoughts, test me, investigate me, like search me and know my anxious thoughts. And then see if there is an offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Those two verses describe, like I think, what psychotherapy is all about. Um, and it's and it's just psychotherapy with an actual like divine therapist that is actually partnering with us to search and investigate together, coming alongside. I mean, Paul writes about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as the searcher of hearts. That's his little, that's his sort of nickname for the Holy Spirit, which again, understanding that heart is the origin of thoughts. Paul's there saying, look, the Holy Spirit is God as like co-therapist, co-investigator with us of our very own thoughts. The the whole very Western actually conception of the self as a as a as an object of inquiry really historically you have to or it draws its origins actually from Christianity you know you could say Augustine really writes sort of the first manual of the self as this right object of inquiry right and this is by the way is why I think therapy and Christianity are at deep deep levels so congruent because both practices are saying the self is a subject of inquiry that needs to be inquired. We, we need to read the signs that the self puts out. It's just the Christianity, in contrast to like purely secular mental health, would say there is another. And, but that other is not just your therapist. The therapist sure. can be part of that process. There's another who is in you, within you, created you, knows you, that is an active partner with you in that process of investigation. And that investigation finds its most fruitful object of inquiry as Psalm 139, 23 says, in your anxious thoughts. Like, so rather than push it away, look to it. It's, it's pushing away our anxiety, treating it as a problem is like treating a, a stop sign, treating a, a, a traffic sign as a problem. Uh, no, no, it's telling you something. Read it, pay attention to it, follow it. Yeah, I mean, again, when it gets into disorder territory, and of course, some of that's eye of the beholder, but those of us who have been there, we, we know, we know it when we see it, it get it can get to a point where it takes on its own life and you need, you know, you need some extra help with that. But I really like that. And actually, I think that there's something very deep. I'm going to try and pull a few things together here and, and hopefully I can land the plane. Mindfulness meditations, which as you know, uh, and probably most of my listeners know, are very similar to contemplative Christian prayer um, in their, in their sort of basic physics the sort of reintroduction of, or maybe introduction of that kind of work into Western therapeutic mindsets and and practice and the idea of acceptance, which is a a fundamental tenet of of mindfulness work is like accepting Mm -hmm. the present moment, accepting the brain and the body that I have Uh, Mm -hmm. a Christian would fill in that God gave me that, that God willed that I would have. Right. And there's something so cool that, 
that sort of contemplative or meditative practice across traditions, across cultures, is consistently associated with a feeling of peace. Maybe not right away. And they're all very clear on this. At first, you know, the Buddhists call That's it right. monkey mind. And and there's all these funny yeah. phrases that that people, that practitioners use for like how hard it is at the beginning. And you got to break through a kind of a wall of, you know, you, I mean, we call it anxiety, but I think it's also just like a, it's just like a neurological reality that we're, we're not used to sort of slowing down our, our processes like that. But you, you yeah. usually break through that if you try long enough and almost everyone across cultures experiences this piece. And in my own contemplative practice, I have found a lot of times like, oh, I, I think this is the piece that surpasses understanding. Like, I think this is... Yeah. I think that whatever I am experiencing right now in prayer yeah. is the thing that the biblical writers are describing and that Absolutely. mystics yeah. across traditions describe. And so in that sense, I, I do kind of, that's kind of how I would draw the line between what you're saying and the practice of some of what we do in therapy, but that we can also do on our own. And yeah. that essentially is available to anybody. Uh, with some very low minimum level of sort of intellectual ability to have some control over their thoughts and breathing and stuff like that. You don't, you don't need to be Einstein. And that's just beautiful. And I, I also love, I, I'm sorry, this is getting to be a very long interjection here, but I also love that it's not consumeristic to tie it back to your, uh, yeah. your uh, yeah. air fryer research or whatever. Like, <laughs> like you don't need to own anything for that. You need to have a little bit of time, but you need like five minutes. You don't need that much time and you can right. just be silent. Yeah. Uh, so it's very democratic in that way. And I think God uh, is very democratic. So that, that lines up nicely. Okay. Yeah. That's, I just threw a lot of connected things out there. Hopefully that congealed together. No, I completely agree. You know, again, my, my book is written especially to Christian audiences, and especially because uh, I think in certain more conservative evangelical traditions, uh, theologically speaking now, that uh, they may have some suspicion yeah. around mindfulness and mindful breathing. It's like, is that new age? Is that, oh, yeah. like, can I do that? Is that okay? Partly what I'm writing in the book is to say, no, 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 actually their mindfulness, mindful breathing, movement, touch, all of these actually have deep origins in the scriptures, yeah. in the life of and ministry of Jesus himself. Uh, mindful breathing is found in the scriptures. I mean, I, I'll, I'll let readers, if they're yeah, interested, yeah. It's, it, it originates from how Jesus imparted his very presence to his disciples was mm. through mindful, through an act of mindful breathing. The, the text is very clear about this in John 20. I, I see it too in the psalmists. I mean, once you've done a little contemplative work and you read some of those Psalms, you're like, oh, okay, that's what these guys are talking about. Like, Yeah, that's what these yeah. guys are talking about. And so I'm trying to connect up a lot of these practices that actually are, and, and, and contemplative prayer and mindfulness, I mean, this, this, goes, this goes back centuries yeah. to the Christian mystics traditions. And so the notion that somehow this is new age is just completely false. Yeah. And I'm trying to recapture our own heritage of all of these practices and give it you know, kind of its Christian origins and Christian origin stories for people so that they can enter into those practices consistent with their own uh, faith traditions. Let me put a bow on the book before talking a little bit about the sociopolitical moment that we're in, because I, yeah. well, I've got you for 10 more minutes. So I would say, I think a lot of readers could really, could and would really enjoy the book. I want to also throw in, man, if you're thinking about what's something that's like 
a few clicks closer to my mom or dad or uncle or more conservative friend, you know, like maybe the kind of person you don't send episodes of this podcast to because they would just (laughs) trigger them or they, you know, they would hear a bleeped out F word of mine or whatever. I would say like somebody for whom they, that sort of scriptural foundation would be not only important, but maybe necessary for them to sort of be open to these ideas. I think your book is a great example for that. My one caveat would be if you think they suffer from a proper anxiety disorder, then of course the normal, you should, you should see what you can do to get them into therapy. Uh, but absolutely. Right. Yeah. Those aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive. They're not, options, they're not right? mutually yeah, exclusive. Yeah. 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 Um, I just always feel like I have to be so careful around that stuff. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about, and of course the, the, the book, uh, link to the book will be in the show notes of the episode. Let's talk a little bit about this moment in American conservative sociopolitics. I'm curious what you think the link is between what we've seen you know, pre pre Trump, but especially what we've seen since 2016 and, and all of that and anxiety. Um, yeah. what, what's the, what's the relationship there? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a little more known, uh, before I wrote this book as the host of the good faith podcast, where we talk a lot about issues in the social, cultural, and political landscape, uh, especially with my original co-host, David French. And so people were a little surprised when I told them about the book that I was writing, because they just naturally assumed it was going to be a book about politics, culture, whatever. And so when I said, I'm writing a book on anxiety, they're like, what? Well, one, like I said, it's a subject I'm deeply familiar with personally, that I'm as a sufferer of anxiety. But two, the connection is this. I don't think you can at all make sense of our political moment on the left and and on the right, on both sides, you cannot make sense of the current dysfunctions affecting both. But 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 as, I would say in maybe especially on the right, mm-hmm. but not exclusively yeah. on the right. If you don't understand anxiety, anxiety is it's soaked throughout all of politics right now. Again, left and right, because it is the fear of loss, right? Anxiety, like we and and there is such deep existential fear of loss. And if we say again. That anxiety, when we treat it as a problem, is is that fear of loss. Anxiety equals loss times avoidance. You can't understand a phenomenon like Trump unless you understand the deep the deep anxieties, the feared losses that are behind the ways in which conservatives are flocking to Trump. It's Trump is like the Xanax, the political <laughs> Xanax for conservative anxiety, yeah. right? It's like, this is the guy who will prevent my loss of, st- you know, standing, stature, cultural yep. place, having a cultural place that my kids will be able to still be Christians going forward, that my Christians, my kids won't go off into some other deviant lifestyle. Like all of these fears, yeah. these really visceral anxieties, they think Trump somehow, you know, either consciously or con- unconsciously, will be the prescription, the political prescription that makes those things go away. Think about January 6th, right? What is January 6th? But it is the refusal to endure loss. Yeah. That, that's what January 6th <laughs> is, right? It is the refusal oh to gosh. endure experience Curtis, loss. that's insane. That's uh, great. Yeah. Literal right? so it's, loss. And, and, yeah. <laughs> right. Democracy requires yeah. that all sides are able to tolerate, to yes. be able to go through loss. So if we have been constructed anxiety equals law, remember anxiety equals loss, and we've constructed, we have to make anxiety go away, which again means we have to make loss go away. We cannot tolerate loss because that's what it means to not be able to tolerate anxiety. Then of course, we're going to go for all sorts of avoidance moves, all sorts of prescriptions, false prescriptions, addictive prescriptions, 
that promise loss avoidance, that conspiracy theories. Underneath every conspiracy theory is anxiety. It's it's soaked oh, in anxiety. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right, and it's 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 and and soaked in it is also this promise that this way of looking at the world will actually make that loss go away. Because to take QAnon as an example, right? You're confused about what's going on. You're anxious. You don't know what's going. Here's exactly what's going on. There's a ring of pedophiles yeah. uh, in DC. Here's a simple explanation that. Here's a yep. simple explanation that that dispels all of the uncertainty and promises a moment of loss reversal. Oh, now, yeah. of course, they have to they have to constantly update right. that. Oh, but it's not unlike uh, predicting yeah. a, a date for the rapture, Christ's return, right? It's, of course, it's, right. It's like this is the date that you yep. can hang on that where loss goes away, yeah. right? And then so, and because that doesn't happen, they've got to revise it once more. But people are hooked because they can't tolerate loss. They can't tolerate anxiety. So they will go for the next hit, even if it means like, oh, I guess Trump returns to power on September 30th. No, now it's October 30th. Now it's December 30th. And, you know, I think that that's really interesting. And, you know, this is a rabbit trail. We can't go all the way down. But, the you know, there's been a lot of, I think, very good journalism on uh, you know, sort of the psychological similarities between what's appealing about QAnon and other conspiracy theories and certain forms of Christianity and, of course, other religious traditions as well. And I actually think that your language from earlier about the avoidance of anxiety is a nice lens for understanding that, like, you are essentially arguing for, as I am, a form of Christian life that leans into anxiety, that accepts loss, that takes, you know, a, a more of a Jesus of Nazareth style model for how to live. Yeah, it just, just happens to follow the actual founder of our right. religion, right? Maybe yeah. let's put it that way. Right. And it's not, it's, it's not a version. It is the it is what sure, it is. <laughs> right. But I just mean like that, you know, a, a, a Christian life that is modeled after the life of Christ. Right. Which is yeah. what it, you should need that to be called Christianity. But, you know, these <laughs> days you don't need it. And uh, and if you do that then your faith is not primarily a numbing or loss avoidance sort of set That's of right. techniques. You know, yeah. we talk about magical thinking, which is a yeah. which is a sort of sometimes properly, sometimes improperly used psychological term. But in the sense of like, a lot of Christians believe, quote unquote, in magical things. Like if you believe Absolutely. in miracles, yeah. some people might call that magical thinking. The real magical thinking, though, the kind of pathological type is like thinking that something is going to happen that really is not going to happen. Not because, oh, you believe in God. I don't believe in God. So I think that your thing isn't going to happen. But it is a bit more this worldly. Like it's a bit more like applied to, to Christianity. God, the cosmic slot machine. Bending machine. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that that's is the magical thinking. thinking. And that's yeah, in QAnon and the yeah. conspiracy theories as well. And that's in a kind of bogus Christianity Right. And so a, a a faithful Christianity, by which I just mean based in the life of Jesus, is a is a kind of a, a nice antidote to that kind of thing. And, you know, this is where the progressives like myself, we start patting ourselves on the back for having critiqued the conservative church and how they got it all wrong. And, you know, some of that we were right. And, and we're now seeing the fruits of it. And of course, we're wrong about other things as well. Well, and let me just, you know. Let's just say this is a human problem. This is not a problem mm -hmm. on the right and left. And so to the extent that your audience yeah. uh, is served by example of on the left, right? The progressive addiction to canceling, to the cancel culture, is it, it's your version of, or are, if we want to just be universal about this, because yeah. uh, that happens on the right as well, is like, I cannot tolerate losing this argument. Mm. I cannot tolerate losing this position. 
Therefore, I have to avoid the opposing view. I have to cancel it. I have to get rid of it. I cannot actually hold it, hold a dissenting viewpoint in my space. It's it's unsafe. Well, that that one, I really feel like that that cuts yeah. really cleanly across both right and left in terms of that sort of thing. The one I was thinking of that more applies to the left than the right is I think that progressives fear losing progress. And so mm-hmm. we fear, oh, like, are they going to overturn Obergefell? They overturned Roe. Are we going to like, you know, be, because basically the I don't know, the sort of salvation moment for the true sociopolitical progressive is, well, we're always going further, further yeah. into more beautiful future with more rights and more equality and more justice. And so, you know what? If you live in, uh, you know, I, I, I have more nuanced views of abortion. But let's just say they were to overturn Obergefell or something. Then what I would say is, yeah, we just lost some progress. What's the thing to do in that moment? Numb it? Avoid it? No. Look into it. Okay. Why is this hurting me? How should I then, how should I then orient my life to act in such a way that I am pursuing this good again that was lost? And then that's now we're doing values and we're doing goals and we're being proactive and we're not simply numbing and avoiding our anxiety or our depression. That's right. It's tolerating loss. Again, fundamental to democracy. Like, let's just make a case for people who care about democracy here, (laughs) even regardless of your spiritual or political origins. If you care about democracy, you need to be able to like tolerate loss. That's built into democracy. That's that's the fundamental process is that no side will always win, the, mm-hmm. including the progressive vision, yeah. the progressive side does not always win. You will experience loss. That's what it means to be in a democracy. The other side, you know, may win, which may mean you lose. And if we can't tolerate that, uh, then we're in real trouble. We are We are signing up for a recipe of intensifying anxiety. Well, much more to be said, but we are out of time. Curtis Chang, thank you so much. I'll just let people know, too, I'm going to be on your podcast. I don't know which will come out first, but uh, I'm excited to be able to talk with you again. We recorded this before we recorded your episode. And man, what a pleasure. Uh, So so fun and, and looking forward to having you on my podcast at The Good Faith there as well, Dan. 